part of this series. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear God, thank you for being here with us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for growing us up. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever met a prophet? I have. He was about 14 years old when I met him, and his name was Michael. I was doing a unit of CPE. Do you know what CPE is? It's clinical pastoral education. And um, I was a nurse at the time, actually, and I was learning how to be a chaplain. So I was taking this unit of CPE, and they put me on the cancer unit, the kids' cancer unit, pediatric cancer. And um, just before I had walked in to see Michael, uh, I learned from the nurse that he had the type of cancer that was incurable, basically, and um, his prognosis was very poor. Okay, so I'm afraid, right? <laughs> what am I going to say? I know how to give shots. I know how to cure, that kind of thing. But what do I say to a young man who's dying? And so I was very nervous as I walked into his room, and he had earphones on listening to some music on a tape, you know, kind of doing this. And so I, I kind of motioned to him, and I said, can I talk to you? He's like, yeah. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I'm going to be talking to him through his music. So I said, well, what are you listening to? He goes, oh, it's great. And he, he says, my favorite group. And he took the earplugs out of his ear and on the way to mine said it's ACDC. And by the time the earplugs got into my ears, I was like blasted out of the water. <laughs> but I've learned something about young people. There's this amount of time. If you take the earplugs out too soon, you don't like them. You don't like their music, right? You can't take it. If you leave them in too long, they know you're lying. So you have to leave them in just that right amount of time that says, I'm really trying here. <laughs> so I listened for a while. And interestingly, the music was about dying and death. So I, I took the earplugs out and I said to Michael, I said, so what is it about this group that you like? And he said, oh, he said, I think they really understand what life is all about. I said, really, what's that? He says, you know, um, it's all about God, people, connections and stuff. I mean, you know, um, life's pretty short. And then he looked at me with these hundred-year-old eyes, and I couldn't stand it. And I could not broach the topic of cancer. So I said, so tell me about these people in your life. Who are the people for you? Oh, he says, I got family, uh, my mom, she comes when she can got, you know, uh, other kids in the family and, and friends. In fact, David, David. And he yelled out just as one of these other ball-headed kids are walking down the hall with their IV pole. And so David comes in. He said, David, he said, you meet my friend Carla. And I thought, well, now this is interesting because I hadn't introduced myself yet, but he must have read my name tag. So this is Carla. Carla, this is David. thought you guys wanted to meet each other. We talked, and, and they talked, and I listened, and I kept thinking about, is this what I'm supposed to be doing as a chaplain? But we played a couple of games, and then I thought, well, you know, I should go. So I got up to leave, and uh, Michael said, now, you are coming back, aren't you? I said, well, now what I wanted to say is, are you kidding me? <laughs> I don't know what to say to you. Um, I said, sure, sure. He says, that's great. So I left, and I came back, and that was the beginning of my relationship with Michael, the prophet. I call him the prophet because he can see something that I can't. 
He can see left, life and death hovering together all at the same time. And as I walk away, I hear the ringing voice of a 14-year-old in my ear explaining the meaning of life. Well, you know, it's God, people, connections, all that stuff, because life is short. And that's his prophecy. One day you, too, will die. So what do you find meaningful? Well, he didn't say it, but that's what I heard. I was convicted. Michael was the patient, but the real sickness was within me. I was the mighty one. I was the one that was coming to comfort and console, but death had moved so far away from me in my thinking that I had forgotten its hovering presence. I was working too long and too hard, and I had put my own relationships on the back burner. He didn't say it. He didn't say it, but I heard it. When the end comes, you too will want more. So I went back each day to visit. In fact, each day. Sometimes I went on the weekends. And I let the pro his prophecy dig deep into my soul, even though it was painful. Each time, it was kind of funny, each time we shook hands like business partners, I'd come and say, Carla, and he'd reach out and shake his hand. He was a slight 14-year-old, kind of small for his age. And I still um, remember that hand in my hand, that little 14-year-old hand. So each time we shook like business partners and we talked like equals, as I sat there listening to him talk about the meaning of life, about God, people, connections, and all that stuff because life was short. One day it occurred to me that as much as I had been there with him, I had never seen his family because he was always talking about how much people meant to him. So I, I went to the nurse and I said, you know, every time I come, I miss seeing his family. And she looked at me and she said, what family? I said, Michael's family. And she said, he doesn't have any family. I said, what are you talking about? He's always talking about stuff. Oh, well, he's got family. He's got, he's got a mother. Um, she came once. Now, Michael had been hospitalized up to this point for about two months. She came once in leather and chains, and she was completely out of it. But then I heard that she was in prison, so that's the only time I've seen her. That's the only time anybody in, in here has seen her. And sure, he's got half-brothers and half-sisters, but they've never come. All of a sudden, the prophet looked different to me. He continued to speak about people, family. He continued to make buddies from all the patients on the units. And he continued to warn us of how important people were in life because life was short, you know. I started questioning then, and I question now, who is the prophet among us? And what is their message? Let's turn to the text, 2 Kings 5 1. 2 Kings 5 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Isn't it interesting? We have Naaman, who is a mighty warrior, who's also suffering. Do you understand that paradox? I think you do. It comes for us, all of us, in different forms. It could be that you're a nurse who's recently had a miscarriage and you're taking care of babies for other women. Or it could be that you're a church leader and that inside your heart you struggle with questions of faith and doctrine. Or it could be that you're a teacher like I am and you stand up to speak and the first thing that happens is a student raises their hand and asks you a question that you don't know. Or it could be that you've experienced a death in your family 
one weekend and the next weekend your friend wants you to attend their wedding. That juxtaposition of life. Or it could be that you have a best friend who has come to you to talk about dating the man who has just broken your heart. Or it could be that you're an adult like I am learning from a 14-year-old with cancer. We are all in some ways warriors that suffer. And so Naaman is a warrior who suffers. And we can identify with that, but we can identify less with listening to the prophet. Let's look at it. 2 Kings 5 and then verse 2 and 3. Now the Aramaeans on one of their raids had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now that's interesting, isn't it? We have a young female slave girl wanting to give advice. I think if I were taken from my home and my country and I could give advice to the enemy, would I? I don't think so. This young girl tells Naaman, tells her mistress, who tells Naaman, if he could just get with the prophet, then his leprosy would be cured. The strangest thing is what comes next. The phrase is very interesting. So Naaman went. Think of it. A young slave girl has an opinion. She tells her mistress. Her mistress tells Naaman. Naaman goes to his king and says, All right, all right. Writes the letter, gives him gifts of gold and all kinds of things. And off he goes at the suggestion of a little slave girl. So he arrives at the, at the king's uh, place and the king has, reads the letter. Verses 4 through 6. So Naaman went in and told the Lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, Go then, and I will send a long letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousands shekels of gold, and ten sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now let's get a picture of this. Naaman comes in with a letter and gifts. Now kings expect that, right? They're used to that. Opens up the letter. He's expecting probably some negotiation, some announcement for war. He doesn't know. He opens up the letter. We believe you can cure Naaman of his leprosy. Oh, great. Now, can you relate to this? Have you ever had someone come to you and ask you to do something that you thought was impossible? I have. I had someone come to me once and confess to me, and I wouldn't tell this story if it had happened only once, which is interesting. They asked me to deal with their husband that was looking at pornography. And then they said, I don't want you to tell him that I told you. You can't act like that you know anything. You just have to, you know, do whatever you do. Okay, I'm responding in my head exactly as a king of Israel. Am I God? Do I know what to do with this? Or a man who comes to me and says, I think my wife no longer is in love with me, no longer loves me. Can you do something? Am I God? Or the person that wants you to take their, their pet and train them to sit and stand and roll over and bring them back so that you'll have this obedient pet. Am I God? So we can understand the king of Israel 
when he retorts like this, he's used to letters about war, he's used to letters about negotiation, but he is not used to letters saying, could you cure this man of leprosy? And he responds in the way that we would probably respond, who am I? Am I God? It's an amazing thing because Elisha intervenes. Let's, let's read that. So when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life that this man sends words to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look. See, he's, he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. So the king is not only worried that he can't perform a miracle, he's paranoid. But then Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. He sent a message to the king, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may learn what? He may learn what? That's right, that there is a prophet in Israel. In other words, if you can't tell him, send him to me and I will. So we, here we have Naaman who has come from the slave girl to his own king, to the king of Israel who's torn his clothes, and now he's going to the prophet Elisha and he's waiting outside the door. Elisha sends out a messenger uh, uh, that says to him, what you need to do is to go to the Jordan and wash. Now, most of us would say, and what happened next, Naaman went. But that's not what happened next. What happened next? Got angry, absolutely. Got not just angry, he was in a rage. Now, I can understand this too. He has been in the audience of his king. He has been in the audience of the king of Israel. Now he goes to the prophet and the prophet won't even come out the door. The prophet sends a messenger to him. And he says like, I, you know, first off, I can't believe he didn't come out. And second, if he wasn't going to come out, why wouldn't he tell me to wash in rivers that were clean? So he is offended on two levels. Let's read the text. Verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, which we read, so Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry, and he went away, saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out, and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and will wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Parfa the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And then it says, he turned and went away in a rage. Okay, first we have a king that's not, that's not happy, that's angry, and now we have Naaman who is angry. Okay. I understand this too. Think of all the times you've heard these simple solutions to a complex problem. I'm going to name a few of them. Here's one. I was at a church, a beloved church of mine, when I first came out here as many years ago. We were in this little church trying to decide how we could build, build onto it or build another church. And uh, a bright young man, and he was very bright, 
raised his hand and said, I've got the answer. He said, what we need to do, now mind you, this was up in the mountains, right? Beautiful mountains. He said, what we need to do is cut down all the trees and cut them up into boards and then use that to build the church. That's how it was after he said that. We, we all, we, it's like I, remember, I remember right where I was in the pew now that I'm thinking about it. I didn't even think of this first church, service. I remember looking at him and thinking, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. And for those of you who work with wood, you know you don't just cut up a tree and nail it. It's got to uh, dry and all kinds of things. But he wanted to go out and cut it next month and start building the next. And then you think, well, has he thought about the fact that if you cut the trees, they'll no longer be there? That's what we love about coming. Okay, you understand. Somebody who has a simple solution to a very complex problem or what about this? I saw someone go up to a friend of mine who has metastatic cancer and said, if you'll just take this ointment and rub it on your tummy right here, just a little bit, about the size of a quarter, it will heal, you. It will heal that cancer. Oh, thank you very much. I'm so grateful. Or, or what about this? And this is my favorite. If you'll just eat celery leaves in the morning for breakfast, You'll have all the energy that you need all day long. Amen. <laughs> I heard my colleague Mark. <laughs> and then you say to this person, what about the celery? No, it's got to be the celery leaves. Okay, thank you. And, no, uh, and what about the pomegranate juice? If you will just eat, drink the pomegranate juice, it will cure... Yeah, I, I went to buy some. I actually like, love pomegranate juice. I raised pomegranates, uh, one tree. And uh, <laughs> that counts, doesn't it? <laughs> I go to buy this pomegranate juice, and I say to the young lady, I say, so what is it good for? She goes, oh, and she starts looking on the bottle to find out what it is good for, and she can't find it. And then she looks up at me, and she goes, Everything. Or, or what about the person who wants you to invest in a certain venture, and this venture will make you a millionaire? Or what about this one? Brush with close-up, and you will have relationships that are close-up. Or this one. If you'll just concentrate on good things, good things will happen. I had a policeman pull in front of me on the way to church. I concentrated desperately on good things. <laughs> but I don't think that's what kept him from pulling me over. Or this one, smile, and the whole world smiles with you. Okay. What about this one? If you have faith in God, then you won't be depressed, sad, lonely, all those things. That simple solution to a very complex problem. So do you blame Naaman? Do you blame him for being upset? I would be upset too. Not only did the prophet not even come out, the prophet didn't even tell him to do something interesting like bathing clean water, but he tells him to go sit in the mud puddle. Not to just go to the mud puddle, basically the Jordan was very muddy, dirty water, but to dip in it seven times. 
So he turns and walks away in a rage. And frankly, I think that's where the text should have ended because for most of us, that is where it would have ended, is it not? You go, you do, you reach out, and you get what? A stupid solution that makes no sense. Okay, I have a very, very bad habit, and I acknowledge this up front. When I get into a book and it seems to turn trite and simple, I'll go to the end of the book and see if the whole book is like this, I'm going to just put it away. <laughs> okay, we are in a very difficult place in the text. A man's been told to do what seems trite and simple, and the guy won't even come face to face with him. So you, Naaman's got to wonder, is this really a prophet? Okay, so we're in that place in the text where I would jump to the last part of the story. So let's, if you don't mind doing that with me, let's do that together. Verse 14, which is one of the endings of the story. So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan. According to the word of the man of God, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. Is that the oddest thing you've ever seen? It was just one verse ago that Naaman was walking away in a rage. He's going this way in his life. He gets mad, and he is not going to go any further. And then all of a sudden, one verse later, he's washing in the Jordan. He is doing the very thing he said he would never do. And we can't help but ask, what happened there? That's the kind of ending in a book that makes me want to go back and read it very, very carefully. Why? Because hardly any of us in our lives make huge transitions, except for those developmental transitions that we can expect. Usually, when we start off in our life going this way, we usually end up walking in that road. Why? Because not only does our psyche get used to it, physiologically we get used to it. Our brains connect neuron with neuron that says, I put these two things together, I think I'll put them together again. I ate at 6, 7, 8, 10 o'clock tonight, I think I'll eat at 10 tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day. So we've got all these neurological connections that keep us walking in these patterns, and how often do we change significantly from it? Not very. I ask in first service, and I'll ask here, for instance, and you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you went from being totally vegetarian to eating meat? Okay, there's a couple, not many. Why? Because when you start off in a pattern, that's usually what you do. How many went from a lot of meat eating to being vegetarian? A few. Why? Because you start off in one direction and you generally continue in that direction. And when we're mad, do we generally instantly turn around and say, oh, I was wrong? Not usually. So we have a man that is very angry. He's in a rage, and then all of a sudden, he's doing something completely different, and we must ask, what happened there? There's two stories going on here, and I'm calling them parallel stories. We have a king who was mad. He tears his clothes because he can't cure this man. He knows he can't. And a prophet intervenes, right? Elisha intervenes. Now we have a man that's angry again, Naaman, very angry. What will we expect if it's a parallel story? That's right, that a prophet will intervene. Let's look at verse, theme, verse 13, because 13 holds the answer. Oh, wait a minute, though. I think I shouldn't read it. I think I shouldn't read it because I know there's someone here that's saying, 
great. What we're going to do now is you're going to tell us that somebody comes in and convinces Naaman that there's something about the Jordan that he should go to, and he's going to go, and he's going to get healed, and the simple answer continues. That's why I'm afraid to read the text. Because if you're not asking that question, I am. Let's look at it now. Let's see if that's what it says. Verse 13. But his servants approached and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, you would have done it. How much more when all he said to you was wash and be clean. What's interesting is the text does not say, if he were a prophet, why don't you listen? It doesn't say, we are also wondering if he is a prophet. No, they've already concluded. The prophet said, so the question is not about the Jordan. The, not, the question is not about what will the Jordan do for you. The question is, is this a prophet? And that question has been settled for these people. He is a prophet, and he simply asked you to go. Now, what's interesting is that this has been the case all along. There have been three sets of prophets in this text. The first one is the slave girl. She, at least she had a prophetic voice. She said that he should go, and he went. But she didn't say you should find the Jordan. She said you should encounter the prophet. That's right. And Elisha didn't say, Elisha said, come to me so I can show you the Jordan. He said, come to me so I can show to you that there is a prophet in Israel. The servants now are coming to Naaman, not saying we believe in the Jordan. They're saying we believe he's a prophet. The prophet said, go and wash. For one dark moment, Naaman cannot see. Have you ever been in that dark moment when you could not see? I have, just in the last couple of weeks. I have an aunt that's very dear to me. Um, in growing up, we often have these extraneous, odd people that make our lives work, you know? My aunt is, I call it, crazy as a hoot owl, and she would understand that that's a compliment. Um, she, I could go to her with any question, and she would talk to me about any topic, and I loved her dearly. I love her dearly. She was like my soulmate from the time I can remember. And everything was okay with Aunt Beth. And when she would call me sometimes during the summer and say, I'm going out on a call, you want to come? And what that meant, that she was a um, nurse anesthetist, and I would get in the car, and she drove like Jehu to get to the hospital. We would have a cloud of smoke behind the car, which was really dirt. We would be on dirt roads sometimes. And um, arrive at the hospital, we'd both scrub up and go in, and that was my Aunt Beth, and I loved her. And she called me about two weeks ago and told me that she had uterine cancer. And that scared me to death because she's been losing weight 20 to 30 pounds over the last year and couldn't, we couldn't find out what it was. And I knew then, I knew that that uterine cancer was metastasized. And um, she said to me, she said, you know, Carla, if the weight loss is related to the uterine cancer, she said, you know it doesn't look good. And I said to her something I probably should have kept to myself. I said, Aunt Beth, it better not be related because I can't live in the world without you. 
And she kind of laughed nervously. She said, I know, she said, but we're going to get through. You know, she made all those comments. And I hung up the phone, and, I, well, and then I called my mom. I said, Mom, you know, you know that it's metastasized. We all thought that it had. We all thought that it was related. And that was a very dark time, a very dark moment. And like Naaman, I could not see the reason to go to the Jordan. And just a few days ago, um, my cousin, who is her son, called me and said, Carla, they've ch checked 14 nodes, and they're all clear. It's amazing. Now, what's interesting is the dark moment for me, the fear of losing my aunt, is right next door to complete life, but I don't know it. I don't know it because it's dark now, it's dark here, and that's all I can see. Have you been there? Sure you've been there. Whether you're facing a test, whether you're facing the loss of a relationship, whether it's an illness, we, we've all been there in some form or another. So we can understand Naaman being in that dark moment. Until the servants come and say, the prophet asked you something simple. My next question is, have you ever been in the presence of a prophet? Several years ago, many, I got a call from a friend, actually a distant friend. I was in the middle of trying to make a decision about a relationship, a very significant relationship. And the caller said this, asked how he was doing, and I said, I'm fine. I didn't want to disclose. I said, I'm making a difficult decision, but I didn't say about what. And this person said this. I'll never forget it. Said, I just want to ask you one thing. Are you in love? I was angry. I was angry because I thought, how rude. How rude of you to call me once in five years and you call and ask me that kind of a question. And I said, you know, I'm, that's a personal issue. And I hung up the phone. Did I not answer because it was rude? I didn't answer because I couldn't face the answer. Have you ever been in the presence of a prophet? Someone who can see where you cannot see. Someone who knows what to do when you do not know. Have you ever been in the presence of a prophet? Recently, I was on a committee and a person made a, a suggestion for something, a, a way to go. And they said, I've made this suggestion before, and I don't think you liked it, but I'm going to make it again. And in my head, I was saying, yes, you made it before, and here we go again. And then all of a sudden, uh, well, I'm learning to say in my head, listen to every divergent idea. This is a recurring theme for me, and my people who know me will know that I often say the better idea is often somewhere else. But it's a, it's a struggle, you know? So this person makes a suggestion. I say to myself, Carla, listen to every idea. And then I say to myself also, but you've heard that one before and you didn't like it then. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the brilliance of it struck me. And I said, you know what? You are absolutely right. And it will change the course, the whole course of something that we're doing. Have you ever been in the presence of a prophetic voice? Maybe it's your husband or your wife that has come to you and said, I want to love you better, or I'm falling out of love with you, or could we go to counseling, or I wish I were happier. Have you ever been in the presence of a prophet? Someone who can see where you cannot see. Someone who knows where to go when you don't know where to go. Sometimes and very often, that prophetic voice is connected to the very core of God. And when it is truly a prophetic voice, it's very important to listen. 
Because when you listen to the prophetic voice, when you listen to the prophet, the Jordan will always look different. But there are times when we stop listening, and the times when we stop listening the most are the ones when we think we're most right. For instance, we have the best government on the face of the earth, correct? We want to spread that government to other people, even if they might not be ready for it. But the interesting thing is we often close our eyes to things like this. Juvenile delinquency, teen pregnancy, child obesity, teenage depression, and poverty. We might lose our children, but we've got the best government in the world. To quote Mary Peters, the secretary of the Department of Transportation in Minnesota, you know where the bridge fell? She said this, bridges in America should not fall down. Another example, we are the remnant church. And thus we can relax and celebrate together, right? We don't need to interact with others, nor our neighbors pay attention to environmental issues, get interested in political differences, because we are the remnant. We can overlook the fact that our divorce statistics and child abuse statistics are rival those of other denominations and even the unchurched because we're going to a better place someday. To quote an unnamed source, families in Adventism don't fall apart. There are many reasons that we stop listening to the prophetic voice, the worst of which is we think we're right. So left to himself, Naaman would never have headed to the Jordan, and I dare say, neither would we. But then comes verse 13. If the prophet had commanded you something difficult, not if he is a prophet, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, you would have done it, and all he has said is wash and be clean. It does not say they tried to convince him of the potential healing waters of the muddy water. It only says, if the prophet commanded, shouldn't you go? This is not a question about the water. This is a question about the prophet. This is not even whether the prophet is a prophet, because that has already been settled. It is about believing in the prophet. Are you going to reject it because it is simple? Are you going to reject the prophet just because of the command? When Naaman returns from the Jordan, he is not extolling the healing properties of the water. This is what he says. Now I know that there is no God on earth except in Israel. It is not about the water. So what is it that has made Naaman turn around? What is it that has reached through his rage and grabbed him by the throat and made him go a different direction? What is powerful enough to do that? It is not those who agree with us. It is not those who speak with a dominant voice. It is the one with the alternate position, the vulnerable position, the still small voice of God. It is not the voice convincing him that Jordan will heal. It was the voice convincing him that the prophet can be trusted. It is not the good idea. It is the God-led idea. The truth is, if we don't listen to the prophet, we will never understand the Jordan. And the Jordan's waters are murky, dirty, and dark. So the question I ask you is, who is the prophet in your life? Who is the prophetic voice that is trying to speak to you of the very core of God? Is it your wife? Your husband? Are they trying to tell you that the marriage should change, but you can't listen because you can't bear it? 
Is it your son or daughter trying to tell you of your struggles, but you can't listen because you can't face that particular struggle? Is it the oddball suggestion on the committee that you can't hear because it's not the direction that you had wanted to go? Is it your neighbor that is speaking to you, but you can't hear them because you don't even know your neighbor? Is it the still, small voice of God that you can't hear because you're not used to listening? If we don't listen to the prophet, we will never, ever understand the Jordan. It means looking to the faces of people who are different, even gathering around ourselves people who are different. Because if you are always rubbing shoulders with the same, you always get the same. So it's rubbing shoulders with people who are different, of different faiths, of different nationalities, of different opinions, of people I not only don't agree with, but people I might disagree with. So that by encountering this exchange, we say perhaps it could be different. It is wanting to hear the prophetic voice even when it hurts. And so I went back day after day to see Michael even when it hurt, and it did hurt. It hurt to watch him die. It hurt to listen to him talk of the value of the people in his life when I knew that they never came to see him. One day, close to his death, he asked if he could have my favorite puppet. Now, all along, he had been talking about this puppet. This is a puppet that I used with children in the hospital setting, and I would speak through this puppet, and they would often speak to the puppet, but not me. Even though I'm obviously speaking, they would talk to the puppet. I love this puppet, and Jason, uh, Michael had always been talking about this puppet. And then, just a few days before he died, he asked me if he could have it. And this horrible thought crossed my mind, but, you know. And then he said to me, I want to give it to my sister. In my heart, I'm saying, oh, the one who never comes? The one who should be here, but probably no one brings her. I didn't say anything. I just handed him my puppet. And the next day I came, the next time I came, the puppet was gone, given away to somebody. But I can assure you, the family had not been there. I checked. When he died, I attended his funeral. Aside from the many cancer kids who attended, one family member showed up. It was his mother, and she was drunk. Just as I was about to storm off in anger, just like Naaman, how unfair is this? When I heard a little voice at the door, I turned, a voice that said, Hey, Carla, you want a program? And it was David, the young man that Michael had introduced me to. And I turned around, and there he was, bald as the day is long, programs in his hand for the funeral service, grinning from ear to ear as if the world would go on forever. And it occurred to me in that moment that Michael's prophecy had come true, that the meaning of life really was about God, people, connections, and stuff, you know, because life is pretty short. And he had introduced me to David because he thought we ought to meet. There have been many prophetic voices in my life. Sometimes I have listened and sometimes I haven't. But in the times that I have, it has always benefited my life. Have you ever been in the presence 
of a prophet. I have. I have. And from, from that perspective, the Jordan always looks different. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear God in heaven, sometimes we complain that you're not there, that you're not speaking. But Father, you are speaking from so many voices around us. There are people speaking from your heart trying to reach us. If we're not hearing, it's because we're not listening. I just want to thank you for the many prophetic voices in my life. I want to thank you for the many voices who have yet to enter. I pray that you will bless each one of us with ears that can hear the prophetic voices around us, can truly help us see that the Jordan will look different as a result. In Jesus' name, amen.